Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm pumped to have Corey Huff with me on it, on today's episode. Corey is an actor and storyteller who fell into a career in internet marketing. In 2004, he discovered search engine marketing and social media. Since then, he's worked on marketing and software programs for some of the world's biggest companies. In 2009, he started The Abundant Artist, TAA for short, as a way of teaching internet marketing to his artist friends who are asking him for help. Since then, he's helped dozens of artists go from never selling anything um, to now selling pieces monthly or weekly. Some of his artist friends and clients have gone on to sell their work for $20,000 or more. He teaches artists to be empowered to take change of their own art business and to not let others dictate to them whether or not their work is good enough, commercial enough, or fits some predetermined mold of what an art career should be. In 2014, Corey packed up and moved to France for nine months and was able to grow his online business and advance his crazy goal of helping 1,000 artists create a full-time income so they can use their talents to change the world. While overseas, he was offered a book deal. Um, This happened in November 2014. Corey is now back stateside and lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Lissy, and their two perfect kitties. Corey, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. I'm excited. All righty. So your start in the world of entrepreneurship is unusual because your upbringing didn't naturally put you on the path to entrepreneurship. Tell us why your success was a little more than slightly off your childhood projected path. Oh, man. So anybody who has followed me online knows that I'm pretty open about uh, the fact that I grew up relatively poor, you know, poor, what, whatever counts for poor in the United States. Um, you know, I, I didn't, none, nobody in my family went to college and uh, I was I was the first person in my family to to go to college actually in my in my whole extended family and I come from a you know generations of uh, farmhands and ranchers and retail workers and day laborers uh, that kind of stuff and uh, you know in the in the home I grew up in uh, drugs and alcohol were a problem and I really didn't have any concept of any I didn't know anybody growing up who owned their own business I didn't know anybody who even made more than like $40,000 a year. I didn't even know that was possible. Um, you know, and every once in a while I would have friends that lived up on the hill in a big, nice house, which, you know, by most American standards is probably three, four bedroom house. But to me, those houses were mansions. So the idea that I would grow up and run a business and travel to Europe, I'm particularly lucky and blessed. So yeah, you're really lucky, really blessed. But really, what was a turning point for you that really got you off of that path? I think my story is somewhat unusual or somewhat unique. When I was 19 years old, I I served a mission for my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormon Church is what most people know it as. Uh, I started going to church when I was almost 17 years old and I, I met, I fell in with just a completely different crowd than the people that I had grown up with. And I decided that I would go on a mission. And while I was on my mission, I met a bunch of guys from, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds that were different from my own. And my mission president was a retired, uh, financial executive. He's worked for some pretty big companies and he was pretty well off himself. And we lived in the, I lived in the same town with him for those two years that I was out, and he would pull me into his office whenever I would stop in to get the mail. 
and he would sit me down and, and talk to me and say, you know, what are you going to do with yourself when you finish your mission? And just talk to me about his experiences in business and his, and give me pointers in life and things like that. And I'd never met anybody like him. You know, he was, uh, obviously he was very successful, but he was also extremely kind, extremely generous with his time. Um, just a really good man. Uh, Robert Haight is his name. And so then, you know, when I got back from my mission, I knew that I had wanted to go to college. I'd always known that, but so I went to college and I just working for various people, I, I ended up working for this serial entrepreneur named Rick and Rick Voss was his name. And Rick uh, had built up and sold a handful of different businesses. And one day we were sitting in his car and he was taking me on a sales call, training me. And he asked me how much money I wanted to make. And I was at the time, I think I was 21 or 22. I told him, oh, you know, it'd be great if I could make dollars because that was more money than anybody in my family had made. And he laughed at me and, and told me that I had no idea what I was doing. And he told me about some of the businesses that he had built and sold and how much money he had made. And it blew my mind because I had never, you know, besides my mission president, I had never met anybody who was that successful uh, financially. So that just meeting those two men was a huge eye opener for me and made me realize, oh, you know, there's, there's a lot more out there in the world than I knew possible. So then I, I started trying things. Like I started trying, uh, starting different businesses and failing over and over and over again, uh, starting lots of really bad ideas. Um, you know, the abundant artist was something that I started as a side project that grew really organically into what it is now. But when I, by the time I had started it, I had, uh, started and failed probably four or five different businesses before I hit on something that accidentally became my now my, my full-time job. So how did you go from your career in search engine marketing and social media to starting a business of for artists of all people? Because, you know, when you, when you do your scan of all the different industries you might serve, uh, the artists that you serve, like, that's a hard scan. Like, they don't necessarily come up for a lot of different reasons that we might talk to talk about here. So how did you end up, you know, with the abundant artist and its particular niche of people? Sure. So I, when I went to college, I studied theater. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in acting, and I still do that. I still do stage shows here in Portland. And um, actually, when I was in Paris, I had a chance to do a staged reading of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night um, in, in uh, the Shakespeare and Company reading room in Paris. Uh, that is probably one of the highlights of my last year. I, I loved it so much. And there's a, there's a podcast. They recorded it, uh, and there, there's an, a recording out there somewhere. If you go to the Shakespeare and Company Paris website, you can listen to it. Um, anyway, so because I went to theater school, I hung out with performers and actors, you know, modern dancers and painters, and those are all my people. And so when I moved to Portland, uh, the, I, I, got, I just looked for a survival job, and I ended up working on the sales floor for this search engine marketing company. And so during the day I was doing uh, SEM and at night I was performing and hanging out with all these artists and people were asking me, you know, okay, so you're learning search engine marketing. Like how does Google work? How do I get my stuff found by Google? How do I get people to come to my shows? And so I started a blog that was just me teaching what I was learning, just basically writing up what I was learning that helped me understand it better and fill in my own knowledge gaps by explaining it to other people. And then I started thinking about, okay, you know, I don't want to stay in this job forever. How am I going to 
become a successful creative. And I started uh, reaching out to other creatives that I knew and interviewing them and saying, you know, how did you make this work? How did you become successful financially? And they were all really generous with their time and, you know, spent some time with me and I'd write up their interviews and post them as blog posts. This was uh, roughly 2008 is when I started doing that. And from there, it just grew organically. Like I would, I would write these blog posts and my creative friends would pass it on to other people and uh, it just started to gain momentum. Uh, and right around that time, Facebook came out with the Facebook ad platform. And the company that I was working for at the time only did search marketing. And I said, well, we should do social media. And they said, great, you do it. So, <laughs> so I developed a Facebook ad platform uh, service for the company. And that became, <laughs> uh, that became the comp- oh, a major source of revenue for the company uh, as, as Facebook's ad platform grew. And I trained the customer service team on how to support it and the sales team on how to sell it. And uh, that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor where I actually had support. Um, and, you know, I had the support of the organization. And eventually that job ended and I tried to make a go of it for about six months on my own. Uh, but I, I didn't know what I was doing. On, I didn't know how to do it on my own. So I still had the abundant artist. I was still rolling with it, but I couldn't figure out how to make it work financially. And so I took another job. And that job was awesome because we were doing social, social media data marketing. We were scouring big data that was generated by social networks and using that for uh, marketing campaigns for big Fortune 500 companies. It was really interesting. And so I ended up in a lot of meetings that I really didn't belong in because I was, I was at the startup and I was employee number like 24. So then I ended up in meetings with CEOs and VPs of marketing for huge companies and I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how big companies do things. I learned a lot about how small companies do things. And uh, eventually, you know, I, I was able to take a lot of what I was learning and roll it into my own business. And, and for probably about the last year that I was at that company, I was essentially working two full-time jobs. I was working uh, you know, my, my full-time day job, traveling around the country and stuff, and consulting. And then I was at night uh, working you know, six, seven, eight hours a night. Uh, on my own business. And eventually I had to quit because I couldn't do it anymore. So uh, now here I am. That's been uh, almost three years since I left my day job. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited about it and I'm excited to see where the future holds and for this book to come out and all that. See, the funny thing is when you have a part, when you have a full-time job and then you have your side hustle, you work two full-time jobs to get them going. And then when you don't have that part-time job and or that full-time job anymore, well, then you have one really big full-time job. Yeah. I honestly felt for the first, for the first six months after I left my full-time job, I felt like I had, had so much free time. I was like, yay, I have so much free time. So before we move on to talking more about The Abundant Artist, I'm curious, how do you balance being an actor, which isn't directly related to your business, and all that it takes to run The Abundant Artist? I've always done something else plus acting. So that's just been my life. Uh, you know, most theater companies are nonprofit organizations, and so they run rehearsals in the evenings and on the weekends. So that's what I do. And my wife's an actor too, so she gets it. Uh, I built this business specifically with the purpose of being able to have a lifestyle that would allow me to make my art. 
I when I when I was in college, my senior year, you know, all my all my classmates were talking about moving to New York and becoming Broadway actors and all that. And we were lucky enough to do an internship at a big theater company in Salt Lake City, and they had some New York actors there. And the New York actors talked about how hard it is to make it in New York as as, a, as an actor. And I, I I knew that already, but the reality of it just didn't sound fun, right? Like I got into theater because I thought it was because it, it, I love the art form and I love sharing those stories. But you know, I don't want to be fifty five years old and finally buying my first five hundred square foot condo. Um, I wanted to have a little more flexibility and a little more uh, security in my life. So I built the business as a, as a way of creating a flexible enough lifestyle for myself that I can do the art that I want to make. And I'm lucky enough to be in that position. Um, and it's, it's important to me personally as an artist to, to do that work, but it's also important to me because my clients, I want to model that for my clients. I want to show them that it's possible to, build a lifestyle that you want and also continue to make the art that you want to make. Yeah, that's an important point because there's so much normative pressure in entrepreneurship circles that you monetize your passion, right? That if your passion is acting, that you find some way to build a business or something around that. And, you know, that doesn't work for everybody because it can make your passion, well, not be your passion anymore. <laughs> You're right. It's all fun and games when, you know, I, I think about sort of the my army experience and people are like jumping out of airplanes and things like that. I was like, well, when you do that as a job, it's no longer that fun. Right. <laughs> um, and so th- there's an important point where, you know, so- sometimes it really does work to monetize your passion and make it go. But then other times, you know, like, like that's what I like about your decision making process there. You wanted to enjoy that passion. You want to continue to do it, but you didn't want it to be have it be this all-encompassing thing that, you know, 50, 55 years later, there you are, haggard, pessimistic, but happy about that 500, you know, foot, square foot condo. Like, there are different ways to live in this life, you know? What are some of the unique challenges artists face in their entrepreneurial careers? The two biggest problems that most artists have are fear and lack of information. And the fear is something that's generated by the artists, by, by the people around the artists, their friends and family, even their teachers. People say, you know, you can't make a living as an artist. People say, oh, you can't make great art if you're making money. Uh, and these are, these are weird misconceptions that are imposed by well-meaning people um, who don't understand how artwork is, is actually made uh, and how the business of art actually works. And so uh, you get this... Uh, this fear that says I have to do things a certain way or I can't make a living as an artist. And I happen to know a handful of artists who make a great, who make a great living. Uh, just in my, just in my, I know lots of artists who make a living making their art, but I know a handful just here in Portland who are, you know, generating mid six figure incomes from their art. Uh, they're not famous. You, you probably wouldn't recognize their names if I told you who they were. But they are very influential in their sphere, and their stuff gets placed in movies. They go to art school. You know, they, they go get a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in painting or whatever. And in art school, they don't teach business, really at all. You know, they might have a portfolio class. They might have one semester where they bring in a couple of gallery owners, and the gallery owners tell the artists what they need to do to get into a gallery. But there's a huge, huge area of the the fine art business that most artists are never taught and that's starting to change like there's a handful of schools that have like a one semester business class or some sort of 
uh, entrepreneurship center at the school, like Pacific Northwest College of Art here in Portland, just opened a brand new facility. Uh, you know, it's like 100,000 square feet or something like that. And they've got a big office that is a professional development for artists where they've had me in to talk and, and uh, lecture for their school. Um, but that's a pretty innovative program run by my friend Gina over there. Uh, and then like RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, has a, a, a business, I think it's a minor, but it might just be a few classes. Uh, there's a few other schools that are doing something like that. But for the most part, you get uh, a lack of teaching of business skills, and then you even have uh, art professors telling their students that they should plan on never making a living from their art. Uh, and I, get, I actually get a lot of emails from uh, recent graduates who have been told that that they've been told they won't make a living from their art. So that's really frustrating. And then uh, the other thing that I think is sort of singular to professional artists, if you sit in a studio for five to eight to 10 hours a day, you start to become a little bit um, closed off from the world. And most artists that I know, uh, they, they cut themselves off from the world because they, they have to in order to make their art. But what happens is as they become more successful, a lot of the, the more successful artists, they're not out there necessarily training the next generation of artists on how to sell art. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they've, they've worked so hard to get their own business to that point that they either, you know, either want to keep their heads down and keep working um, or they just don't have any interest in, in teaching. And that's fine. Um, that means that I have the opportunity that I have. But uh, I think that there's a, just a, in general, uh, not a sharing of knowledge in, among the fine art community on how to make uh, an art career work. This is an interesting thing when we look at it from an economic point of view or from a social, from a society or social point of view, because no longer do we have the patrons like we used to. Um, we have, as you mentioned, um, art profs that are telling people they're not going to make a living. We, we don't have apprenticeship models like we used to, right? So there's this dearth, there's this dearth of social support structures for artists, right? Um, and at the same time, we're going through, in many ways, a hyper-creative period in, in our society because of all the tools available and how accessible this stuff is. So it's a very interesting position for you to be in, in the sense of lack of social structures, increased wants for creativity and, and art. Um, there's a business for you, folks. I want to talk about that for a second because the, the lack of a patron structure uh, is certainly true. Like it's, it's the, the previous patron structures have fallen apart, you know, since the economic collapse in 2007, about 20% of art galleries in the United States have closed, uh, and a bunch more are in financial trouble. Uh, and then you look at the number of artists, there's, there's something like 20, 25,000 artists graduating from art school every year. Um, only about 6,000 art galleries in the U S. So the odds of getting into a gallery are pretty slim. You know, it's like NBA level odds. Uh, but so, so those support structures are supporting a tiny percentage of the number of artists out there who are trying to make it. But there are emerging structures that I think are really, really interesting and really promising. Uh, you know, one, one great example is the company Patreon. Um, there's all kinds of artists on there. You know, there's some musicians who promise to put out new music videos or new songs every so often. Uh, my friend Gwen Seemel here in Portland, she has a Patreon program. And if you join her, if you join as a supporter, then you show you, I think you get a sketch every so often and you get entered to win a, an original painting by her. Um, so there's, there's those kind of programs. Um, so there's some, there's some new structures in place that are working out pretty well for, for those artists. Um, and I think most artists need to, to start looking at that kind of stuff because 
one, you know, the galleries are going away. Um, fewer and fewer galleries are paying artists to make art and support them while they're making. Uh, and then the, the, the grant scene is drying up, uh, partially because private donations are drying up, but also because uh, grant programs are refocusing on established artists. But let's get real here. Um, I'm going to project a little bit because, you know, I work with creatives as well. The, the thing is, when you go to these other structures, you don't get to be picked. You don't get the validation. You're not going to be in this certain gallery. You're not going to be written up by such and such and all the brouhaha. And there's so much of that, you know, vanity and ego that goes, did you in some ways have to have to drive yourself to be an artist? Because I mean, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an artist, you have to have some functional delusion here, right? Because of all the people doing it, you got to believe you're the one that's going to make it, right? (laughs) Right. Functional delusion. Yeah, that's good. But it's the same thing in, I, I don't think that the problems in arts entrepreneurship are that different from entrepreneurship in general. Most entrepreneurs suffer from the Silicon Valley delusion where they need some wealthy investor to come in and give them a bunch of money and they need to make it into the news and make a huge splash in order to run a successful business. The reality is that most businesses are tiny little companies that nobody's ever heard of. Some of them generate millions of dollars, uh, and, and nobody knows who these companies are, but they're very successful for the owners and for the people who work there. Artists have to get past the idea of being discovered. Being discovered is one way of making it as an artist, but it's like winning the lottery. And if you're going to base your financial future and your artistic integrity on winning the lottery uh that becomes really problematic yeah the way i like to say it is if you really want to focus on discovery go out and discover who your customers are right don't don't wait for them to discover you like like get out there because that's what it takes in today's age right yeah absolutely everybody's everybody's in there's actually never been a better time to be an artist than right now because everybody has the ability of going straight to their fans straight to their collector base and saying this is what i want to work on there's been a lot of articles written over the last couple of years by artists who have, quote unquote, made it. You know, they're making a living there from, from their art. And people criticize them and say, oh, well, you have a huge fan base. Um, but all of these artists started in the exact same place. You know, I, I just read Amanda Palmer's book, The Art of Asking. And what a fantastic account of an artist who was making weird, non-mainstream really strange music, um, but who was an amazing live performer. And she was willing to go, you know, live out of a van for years until she built up enough of an audience that she was able to start making a living from her art. And then the record companies came along and said, oh, you know, you're doing a good thing. Let's give you some money. And then she figured out, oh, you know what? Actually, this isn't working. This isn't good. Like... The, the economics of it didn't work out. She didn't sell enough albums for the record label to keep her on. And so it made more sense for them to let her go. And she ended up making more money without the label because she was able to keep a big, bigger percentage of the profits, even though she really wasn't selling that many albums. You know, And this was all before she married Neil Gaiman and became famous for being Neil Gaiman's wife. But I just, I think her book, The Art of Asking, should be required reading for every artist, just so you can see the guts and sausage of how an art career is made. Yeah. I'll give you a few other names. Jonathan Colton. 
right? Musician, um, makes very sort of weird music. He's managed to have a good career coming from being a software developer. Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, independent artists that have really made their own way. And I mean, who hasn't heard Thrift Shop at this point, right? Right, right. Um, I could go on, but in, in we don't, you know, in episode three, I talked to Seth about this because it seemed like five years ago they were the outliers, right? So sure, those people can make it, but it wasn't accessible. So the Hugh McLeods, the Amanda Palmers, the Macklemores, the we can keep going down those lines. Like, yeah, it worked for them, but does it work for everybody else? And I think I agree with Seth now that um, these tools, these career trajectories, these lifestyles are available to a lot of people who have the tenacity and the courage and the crazy, you know, just that 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 functional illusion I talked about to get out there and make it happen. Um, so let's pivot a little bit and, and talk about sort of where you are with the abundant artist and kind of how that emerged. So what was the hardest lesson you learned during your first three years of business? I think the hardest lesson was figuring out that the business could only grow as much as my, as much as I grew. You know, there are lots of tactical things like learn, like I learned how to build an email list and I learned how to, how to sell and I learned how to, um, you know, grow my Facebook audience, like all kinds of silly stuff like that. But what it really came down to was learn, like believing that I could do the business that when people said, I'm really enthusiastic about what you do. Um, that that meant that there was a bigger audience out there. And it's funny because so many people told me that trying to build a business around artists was a bad move. You know, I went to a couple of conferences with guys that were making a bunch of money in business and they were all telling me, you know, artists don't have any money, you can't sell stuff to them. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there's a lot of people who want to be artists and there's a lot of companies that sell stuff to artists, you know, art supplies and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, nobody else is, nobody else is doing what I'm doing. So learning to trust myself um, and learning to invest in myself, that was another one that was hard. Like, you know, there was a conference that I went to in Los Angeles where I learned, I learned so much that was, but I was, Financially, I really couldn't afford to go to this conference, but I ponied up and did it. And I'm so glad I did because when I was there, I learned a ton. And I'm not saying that everyone should go, you know, go into debt to get their business off the ground. It was a calculated risk. But uh, I think learning to invest in myself and learning that the business could only grow as much as I was willing to learn and let go of things was huge for me. That's a huge lesson for a lot of people. And it's one of those things that we have to learn at different levels, you know? And so like, as you mentioned earlier, as you're scaling your business, having to learn that all over again in a different way. So when was a moment during those years where you really knew you were on the right path, at least for now? So I want to say two, let's see, it's 2015 now. So 2011, I launched a new class uh, called Facebook Marketing for Artists. And if you remember, I, I mentioned that I had built a whole uh, I built a whole Facebook ads uh, service at this company that I had worked at. Thought of packaging that up and offering it as a class, as a product. So I put together this uh, Facebook marketing for artists class, and I I pre-sold it. I, I I put up a sales page, 
and uh, I had 500 people register for the class. And I was still at my day job. <laughs> I was freaking out because I'm, at, I'm sitting at my day job, like refreshing my email inbox and watching all the PayPal receipts roll in. And I was just freaking out. And my office mate is laughing at me because she knew what was going on, but nobody else knew. And um, that was when I realized that I, th- I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this will be a viable business. That's a fun first experience when that, when that happens, you know, um, it's that, that takeoff. I, I talk about it in the small business life cycle is that, that, that switch from stage one where you're in the entry stage to stage two where you, you really hit that takeoff moment. And it's such a thrilling moment to see that happening. Yeah, it was really fun. I was really, I really quite stunned. Uh, and, you know, looking back at it now, it, it wasn't all that much money, but it, was a, a big validation that what I was doing was going to work. And that's sometimes all you need. You don't, I mean, the money is nice. The money is really, really nice. I'm not ever going to say it's not, but the validation and that belief that like you, you did something and, it, and it's kind of like, which actor was it? I, I'm, I'm scared to say it, but like, they like me. They really like me. You know that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't remember who that is, but it'll come to me later. I want to say Sally Fields, but that might be wrong. I think it is Sally Fields, but I, I, I'm sure someone will write me like it's not Sally Fields. But anyways, um, you got you all get what we're saying here, and we'll we'll drive on. Um, so, how does it feel to be in the process of writing a traditionally published book? I mean, what excites you about it, and what scares you about it? Um, well, the exciting thing is that a publisher was excited enough to, you know, give me an advance. Right. That mean, and and we we were actually in a competitive bid situation. We had four different publishers wanting to wanting to buy the book, so that was pretty exciting. Uh, the idea of the challenge of getting all my ideas down into a book into one place. You know, I've been blogging for years and years and years, and writing long form content like this is totally different for me. And so that that's pretty fun. That's pretty exciting. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that I've got a deadline. And uh, I'm 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 a little worried about hitting that deadline, <laughs> but uh, I'm 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 excited about it. Are you worried based upon actual experience and that you're you're already behind? Or are you worried just because you you know of so many of the stories of of artists getting behind? Oh, I'm definitely behind. Uh, you know, the whole moving back from Europe thing, uh, for trying to find an apartment after we moved back took way longer than I thought it would. So I'm not I'm not hopelessly behind, but I am behind. Yeah, there, there's hopelessly behind there's behind there's on track and there's a little ahead of schedule and you know in some world there is like ahead of schedule like really really well ahead of schedule i, I think that's just the chimera that we that's a mythical theory. it's a mythical theory it's, it's like the unicorn we, we 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 think it might be possible but it, it you know not so much <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. so what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing the most unanticipated challenge is probably how hard it is to build a system that an employee can step into and be effective, right? You can't just hire somebody and, you know, everybody thinks, oh, just hire a smart person and that person will step in and and grow my business. And really it's on you, on me, to build a system that the right person can step into and work that system and be successful. Um, and, and that has been uh, the biggest challenge for me so far the last, for the last six months. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard one. That, that is a hard one. And the whole process takes longer than you think it's going to take. Right. So I work with clients on that one and it's like, Oh yeah, I could totally get someone to do this in a month, six months later. Um, 
they're still working on it, you know, and it just takes time. I mean, here, here's the thing. We always forget how long it took us to learn how to run our own damn business, right? It's like, we, we've been at this four or five years and you, like someone can't just pick that up in a month. Yep. Yeah. It's really hard to, to take what you know how to do almost at an instinctual level at this point. And, and write it down so that it's clear and train people on it and have the patience to go over it with them a couple times and then see where you, you know, where the gaps are that you've missed so that you can help them get it. Uh, you know, and it's not because the person you hired isn't smart enough. It's, they're just not in your brain. Yeah. And having the patience to let them make mistakes because, you know, that's how we learn to all those sorts of things. Uh, but I don't want to have us dive too deep right here. Alrighty. So wrapping things up, if people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away? Fail harder. I got that from uh, widening Kennedy, the advertising agency. I saw uh, the Kennedy, the Kennedy of widening Kennedy speak at a conference and he talked about what fail harder means. And I, I took it up as my mantra there's a giant board in their front office that, that's made out of push pins and it's like eight feet tall and it says fail, fail harder. And in his talk, he talked about what that meant. It's just, you know, they, in order for them to do their business, they have to try a lot of stuff that doesn't work and you have to fully commit to it um, or else it won't work at all. But you have to, you have to try things and iterate fast, uh, you know, drop the stuff that isn't working and try new stuff. Um, that's been the mantra for me for the last couple of years. And it seems to be working out pretty abundantly for you. Yeah, we're doing okay. All righty. Thanks so much for joining us today, Corey. Thanks so much, Charlie. All righty. For everybody listening, what can you do today to experiment more and, as Corey mentioned, to fail harder? Um, what are you afraid of doing because you don't know how it's going to work out? Give it a shot because it might just be the pathway to your own abundance. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.